Dead Pilot Society, the podcast that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I am Andrew Reich, the creator and co-host of Dead Pilot Society. Our Dead Pilot this time comes from Jeff Greenstein. Jeff's credits include Dream On, Friends, Will and Grace, Desperate Housewives, and Parenthood. He's also a director and has directed episodes of Mom, The Odd Couple, and The Neighborhood. The pilot is the rich inner life of Penelope Cloud, and we kind of bent the rules of Dead Pilot Society for this one. You'll have to listen to my interview with Jeff after the reading to know what I mean. The uh, You need to listen to that interview. The story of this pilot, by which I mean not the plot of the pilot, but the story of the fate of this pilot, has way more dramatic structure than our Dead Pilot stories usually have. There's an early triumph. There's an all is lost moment followed by a dramatic resurgence. There are bad guys. There's ultimatums. I mean, I've rarely heard of such direct confrontations over notes uh, as I've heard from Jeff on this one. It's a pretty remarkable story of a pilot. Um, I'm going to say something else I wasn't going to say. And I didn't tell Jeff, but that's like when I first read this, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it for the podcast. It's a story about a blocked writer. And that is a plot line that's usually a deal breaker for me. I mean, the the movie adaptation aside, um, just uh, usually my reaction to that plot line is usually just get over yourself. But, you know, I don't know. I just thought this was a bit pretentious. I wasn't that into it, but I like Jeff and... I read it a second time and liked it more, and I thought, yeah, let's give it a shot. Well, my initial assessment uh, was wrong. I was wrong. It's really, really good. It's smart. It's funny. The characters are fully realized. Uh, It's just yet another lesson in the power of hearing things read aloud by great actors. And those actors were Michaela Watkins. I think I said that weird. Michaela Watkins from Casual and Transparent. Uh, and the Unicorn as Penelope Cloud, Daniel David Stewart from Catch-22 as Ivy, Malcolm Barrett from Preacher as Claude, Navid Negabon from Legion as Dr. Hakim, Mary McCormick from In Plain Sight and The Kids Are All Right as Ava, Nicole Bloom from Superstore as Georgia and The Counselor, Felicia Day from Supernatural as Kendall, uh, a little guy named John Cryer, Two and a Half Men as Dr. Birkin, and introducing Kelsey Sandoval as Adoracion. So now, recorded live at the Writers Guild Foundation in Hollywood, here is the rich inner life of Penelope Cloud, followed by my interview with Jeff Greenstein after a brief message. 
Hello, my name is Tusk Henderson, and I am an outdoorsman. Are you looking for a new comedy podcast? This month's episode of Beef and Dairy Network Podcast has as its guest the wonderful Nick Offerman, playing the part of Tusk Henderson, adventurer and outdoorsman. Think about fitting yourself a month's worth of provisions and a half-ton cow into a kayak. So if you've never listened to the show before, this might be a good place to start. I string a bowstring between her horn tips and I can fire a spear off the top of her head and uh, took in some very delicious cod. So, if you're after a new comedy podcast, why not try the Beef and Dairy Network for maximum fun? Download it now! You flip a cow upside down, they make an excellent toboggan. This is The Rich Inner Life of Penelope Cloud, Episode 1, Good Morning, written by Jeff Greenstein. We fade in, we're interior coffee shop day. We're on Penelope, holding forth, very self-serious, as if being interviewed for a literary journal. She stubs out a cigarette. You hear all this talk about self-expression. Do I not have better things to express than myself? This absurd notion that art should be a reflection of one's rich inner life or a way of exorcising one's demons. Surely there are more effective ways to do that than by putting words on paper or paint on a canvas. She pulls out a pill bottle, shakes out two pills, then self-consciously looks up at her unseen interviewer. I assure you, these are administered under a doctor's prescription. She swallows the pills. Ideally, the author should be invisible. Who's our language's greatest writer? Shakespeare? A man we know nothing about. And a good thing, too. If, I, if we knew he'd been thwarted, if we knew he'd had thwarted military ambitions that a bum foot kept him out of the army, we'd read Richard III totally differently. It would all be seen through the prism of the foot. Would you like some more vanilla milk? <laughs> we reveal that she's been talking to Adoracion, 11 years old, Latina, a small fire plug of a girl who stares mutely at Penelope with big round eyes. I'm sorry, I'm doing a lot of the talking here. I was going to teach you a few English words and I guess I got sidetracked. Let's hear about you, Adoracion. <laughs> That's what the big sister people said we should do. Learn about each other. You've already heard my thoughts on the sickness afflicting our culture. What's your dolly's name? <laughs> Adoracion just stares, clutching a ragged doll. There's a beat. Okay, back to me. I have no dolly. In fact, well, not that my personal life is any concern of yours, but I live alone. I prefer it that way. When I return home, everything is exactly as I left it. If change is wrought, it is wrought by me. I teach writing at the college. <laughs> I contribute to Harper's and the Times Book Review. The Atlantic and I aren't speaking at the moment, and I'm working on a novel. The follow-up to my National Book Award winning... Okay, yes, it's been 19 years, but it's not like when I was young. There are, there are expectations, and I have a very full life. Good friends, a rewarding career, romance, when that's necessary. <laughs> thanks to the Big Sister Association, now I have you. What more could a woman want? <laughs> and we're interior of the Big Sister Association. 
Adoracion sits off to the side, brushing her doll's hair as Penelope steps up to confer with a counselor. Yes, I'd like a new little sister, please. <laughs> I'm sorry? This one doesn't talk. I'd like a new one. Um, ma'am, we don't really do that. She's barely used. <laughs> I've only taken her out twice. Look, I'm returning her in the exact condition she was when she left the store. Is there paperwork? We'll just do a straight exchange. This is not a store. It's store-esque. Whatever. Look, you must have others in the back. I just... <laughs> I just need one that talks and a grasp of irony too if that's possible the counselor just looks at her unmoved a beat then Penelope turns back to Adoracion brightly who wants ice cream and we're interior of the English department later Kendall a young vivacious associate professor is grading papers Penelope enters drops her bag hangs up her overcoat may I just advise against the following sequence Cigarette, black coffee, pistachio chip ice cream, bus exhaust, sig second cigarette, scent of panhandling teenager. Good morning, Penelope. Do not say good morning to me. The morning has not occurred, therefore its goodness cannot yet be evaluated. Good morning is one of those fatuous phrases people mouth in lieu of actual conversation, like <laughs> take it easy or see ya. One may as well say Had breakfast with your little sister, did ya? The girl simply will not talk. Have any of my students shambled in yet? Oh, is it your office hours? That explains the young man cringing in your guest chair. When I looked in, he was gazing at his story, patting it gently like it was the last time they were going to see each other alive. <laughs> I have to be tough with these kids. A few of them could, with the proper horse whipping, become good. And where else are they going to learn about writing? From the bestseller list littered with star-crossed high school vampire sequels, ghost-written reality show memoirs, ingenue bondage fantasies, and post-apocalyptic dystopian potboilers where crossbow-wielding teenagers run and kiss and kill each other with crossbows. <gasps> Your breath control is amazing. I don't know how you hang on long enough to uncoil a sentence like that. I swim. <laughs> she exits to her office. We're in Penelope's office. Uh, she enters. The waiting grad student perks up. Oh, good morning. No. <laughs> she settles in behind her desk and takes out his paper. Now, let's talk about your story. Wintry metaphors. The bear tree. The frozen lake. The, ah, uh, ah. Uh, Hillcock enrobed in white should not be deployed by someone who has yet to watch a loved one die. <laughs> she hands the paper back to him and smiles. Try again, won't you? <laughs> We're in Penelope's office later. She talks with a female grad student about her story. The full moon, your period. I assure you, the temporal connection is purely coincidental. My cable bill arrives every 30 days, too. <laughs> she hands back the girl's paper with the same patient smile. And later, another female student. Penelope points to her paper. This word, haunch, it bothers me. Don't use it. <laughs> also, haughty, the two of them in the same story. Take it away. It's unsettling. She shudders and quickly hands back the paper. Later, she confers with a male grad student. 
I think you may have gone a tad overboard with the descriptions. She hands him back his story, straining to do this with one hand as it appears to be over 500 pages long. <laughs> Forgive me for skimming, but I only have one life, and there were adjectives everywhere I looked. <laughs> This student is Ivy. He's oddly appealing, with pale blue eyes, lots of dark curly hair, and an old sweater a few sizes too big for him. He slurs a little, running his words together. Uh, it's okay. I'll rewrite. Re re uh, I'll do it over. Uh, when would you like it? I could have it done by Thursday. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid of you. <laughs> Are you all right? Uh, honestly? If you must. Uh, I'm a little drunk. <laughs> okay. I had a huge fight with my dad this morning. He wants to pull me out of grad school so I can uh, take over the family business. Which is? Senator. <laughs> I was pretty upset, so I drank some of my roommate's Jack Daniels. It tasted like Listerine to me. I don't really know how to drink. Maybe I drank his Listerine. <laughs> I am very drunk. <laughs> and onward. <laughs> I have a number of other students waiting, so why don't we wrap this? He abruptly reaches over and gently touches her face. Penelope is flabbergasted and slightly alarmed. Hi, what are you doing? Uh, when I'm drunk, I touch people's faces. Again, not a big drinker. I'm just assuming. <laughs> he removes his hand. Uh, see ya. He exits. Penelope checks her watch and sighs. Two more hours to go. She uncaps her pill bottle and knocks one back. We're in her office later. A pretty female student, Georgia, looks pained. Uh, I'm terribly sorry, Professor Cloud. I'm not a professor. I'm a guest lecturer. Uh, g guest lecturer Cloud? It's not a title. It's a I, I don't have my story. I'm sorry. I didn't finish it. Um, can I show you the part that I do have? Certainly. I, I have nothing. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I'm blocked. I can't. Uh, nothing. You say you're blocked? Georgia nods. Penelope drops the smile. There is no excuse for that. Oh my god, you're mad. A National Book Award winner is mad at me. There is always something to write about. It is simply a matter of discipline. Now, you listen closely. Go out. Go buy a kitchen timer. Her lecture continues over the following. We're in her apartment later as Penelope enters, tearing an obviously newly purchased kitchen timer out of its bubble pack. You set it for 10 minutes. You sit down at your computer, and for those 10 minutes, you are to do nothing but write. She sets the timer and settles in at her laptop. No checking your email. Not looking at awfulplasticsurgery.com. Just <laughs> typing. Her fingers are poised over the keyboard, but nothing's coming. Write a pretend letter to your mother, or talk about what you had for lunch. Tell that girl who tormented you in high school what you've always been dying to say to that bitch. Penelope is paralyzed, staring at the blank document before her. If at the end of those 10 minutes you've got nothing, then you're done for the day. But chances are you won't want to get out of that chair. Quick cuts, the timer, Penelope's eyes, the blank screen, her hands motionless on the keyboard. She gazes at the ceiling, glares at the timer. Its ticking fills her consciousness. You'll be on a roll with something, at least. In 40 years of writing, that's the way it's always gone for me. At last, ding, relieved, she grabs her coat and runs out. 
for interior or deli later. Penelope's alone at a rear table, devouring a large, drippy roast beef sandwich. When Claude charges in, he's in his mid-40s, stocky, handsome in a vaguely European way, and wearing stylish, thick-framed Lou Wasserman glasses. How's the book coming? This is the best roast beef sandwich I've ever had. And this is not exactly a town that wants for roast beef sandwiches. You vanished from London years ago by with no response to my calls and emails. I track you to your lair, and all you can talk about is a sandwich. You know what else is great? Their menu is awash in spelling errors. That makes me happy. This place is run by people who've discovered at an early age where their talents lay, not in the written word, but in the making of magnificent roast beef sandwiches. <laughs> Oh, bus boy. <laughs> the bus boy glances at her quizzically and keeps walking. They want the book, Penn. The company was bought by a German conglomerate who, in the course of the list-making and her cuddling Germans are so good at, discovered you've owed them a book for almost two decades. I can't keep covering for you. My boss says I'm letting our personal relationship cloud my judgment. Did he say you're letting your relationship with Penelope cloud your judgment? <laughs> Because that would have been a rather witty and punful use of my first and last name. I'm not going to let you upset me like this. You always do this. No one else can do this to me. He pulls a handful of napkins from the dispenser and blots his forehead. And as for our personal relationship, Claude, I'm fairly sure we no longer have one. That ended one bright spring day in 96 when I found you in bed with my research assistant. Apparently, whatever she was researching lay within your pants, and she was ferreting it out quite vigorously. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to speak to you not as as a friend, but as your editor. Do you have anything I can show them? Art takes time, Claude. I could bang out an inferior piece of trash in the weekend, but that wouldn't do either of us any good. Speaking of which, how is your young wife? <laughs> Jill is fine, thank you for asking. I didn't mean to imply your wife is trash. That would be offensive, just that her book is trash. For your information, Jill's novel just came out in paperback. It's on the short list for the Man Booker Prize, and Shailene Woodley is negotiating for the movie rights. Well, good for Jill, and good for Shailene. I'm sure she'll make a delightful film from your young wife's account of her time in a mental institution. <laughs> What do you mean? They don't get fashion TV here. Oh. Are you finished? Yes, I am. Because <clears throat> I must tell you. Jill probably thought it was a day spa. Well, with all the shiny faced people walking around in white terry cloth robes. There, now I'm finished. <laughs> Claude squints at her. What's happening to you? Does New York make you like this, do New Yorkers? Penelope looks away. I remember when you fled here the first time, right after we split. You came back so bitter, bitterness dripping from every pore like some poisonous flower. Ooh, that's lovely. Did Jill write that? Okay. <laughs> Bottom line, if you don't come through with something, by the end of the month, they're going to sue to recover their $100,000 advance. This pulls Penelope up short, then quietly. That money's been spent, Claude. Look, we just need to show them you're working. Placate them. So pull together ten pages and have a reading. Oh, I'm not sure that's going to be possible. I don't... I just... Claude, I don't have it. This hangs in the air, then Penelope turns away, uncomfortable. 
This really is a remarkable sandwich. As she reaches for the sandwich, Claude takes her hand consolingly. She gives him a grateful little smile, and then his phone vibrates on the table. A text. He looks. Jill, the baby's kicking again. Are are you... I didn't know you two were having a baby. Well, you run away, you're going to miss stuff. We got rid of Blair, too. Yes, Jill's due right after Christmas. The phone buzzes again. He looks. Your disease is alive inside me. I'm sure she didn't mean that. (laughs) Well, congratulations. My goodness, that's exciting. I guess you've come a long way since you and I were together and you said bringing up a child into this morally break-up world would be an unpardonable sin. Claude doesn't even hear her. He's still fixated on the phone. Now she's just talking in emojis. This is rather disturbing, honestly. A baby's head is getting simultaneously shot and shot upon. (laughs) Penelope gets up. This news has really affected her. Would you excuse me for a moment? I'll be right back. Trying to cover her distress, she exits to the back. In the restroom, moments later, Penelope locks the door, digs in her purse for her trusty pill bottle, cracks it open, and it's empty. She blanches. In the deli moments later, Penelope emerges from the restroom. The busboy passes. Excuse me, that gentleman at the rear table with the glasses, he'll take the check now. (laughs) The busboy nods and heads off as Penelope sneaks out the back. Interior therapist's office later. The chair's back is to the door. Penelope strides in, holding her pill bottle. Hi, Dennis. I know my appointment's not till Thursday. I just need a quick, quick refill on my... The chair turns to reveal Dr. Hakim, a burly, dignified man. He looks up from the file he's been reading, Penelope's file. Hello, Miss Gloves. Oh, I, um, is Dr. Birkin here? <laughs> Dr. Birkin has left the practice. And there were a number of irregularities in his uh, dispensation of uh, prescriptions. Uh, so we took steps to remove him. Oh, well, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> I'm Dr. Hakim, and the senior partner. I've taken the liberty of reviewing your file, and um, if all you need is a refill, I will be happy to write it up for you. Thank you. I'd appreciate that. She hands him the pill bottle. He checks the label, takes out his prescription pad, and starts writing. However, I should warn you, if you continue taking these pills, uh, you were never going to write again. Um... Okay, I'm just gonna go. I would like a few minutes of uh, if I may. I don't think so. I. Doctor Hakim pulls out a pair of pills in a foil sample pack. Well, two minutes. I'm sure I can spare that. <laughs> he tosses the pack to her. Thank you. I uh, don't. You want to clap your flippers and bark? I don't let anybody speak to me that way. I try sometimes. You might learn something. Uh- <laughs> therapist are you? I obtained my degree from the University of Aleppo in Syria. My dormitory is now a bomb crater, but the knowledge remains. (laughs) Uh, I'll take those two minutes now. He points to a chair. Penelope considers for a beat, then sits. Very well. You want to start to writing again? Stop taking the pills. You say you feel out of sync uh, with the world. You are supposed to feel out of sync. You are an artist, for God's sake. People walk into my office with uh, every day uh, with real problems. 
You, Ms. Cloud, do not have a real problem. You have a mood. <laughs> if you would like a real problem, I suggest moving to Darfur. Then you can tackle some stimulating brain teasers, like avoiding getting shot uh, and keeping in the flies out of your mouth. <laughs> but if you are not up for that, I would say change your life, change your mood, and try feeling your feelings instead of bottling them up uh, with chemicals. Then maybe those of us who very much enjoyed your very first book will live long enough to see your second. A long beat as Penelope takes this in. <laughs> so Dr. Birkin will never be back? <laughs> No, and uh, there's also reference here to a pregnancy some years ago. And that'll be abruptly stands. You know what? Nobody's ever put it to me that way before. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Thank you for your wisdom and your bravery and your honesty. She hands him the pills. I won't be needing these anymore. I'm free! She hugs him. Congratulations. Uh, but um, um, this other matter, I would, I would, I would care, if you would care to discuss the further, uh, discuss the further, I would be happy to. No need. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hakeem. Thank you. Thank you with all of my heart. She turns to go, head righteously held high. Then, as she walks out, the hint of a smile plays across her lips. We see that during the hug, she stole Dr. Hakeem's prescription pad. <laughs> We're in the elevator moments later. On the way down, Penelope is merrily scribbling on the pad. She turns to a fellow passenger. Two questions. Is the pharmacy in the lobby still open? And Adivan, one T, correct? Yes? <laughs> um, yes and yes. Your peach. <laughs> she scribbles some more. The doors open and a few more people get onto the elevator. One guy has a pink rash on his arm. Hi. Beautiful day, isn't it? Oh, that's a nasty rash. Let me write you up some amoxicillin. <laughs> she dashes off a page, hands it to the guy, begins writing herself another one. A moment later, the elevator doors open to the lobby, revealing a less than pleased Dr. Hakeem. Penelope freezes, pen in mid-stroke. Well, at least you're writing again. <laughs> She glares and tosses the pad at him and stalks out. We're exterior New York City, it's morning, an idyllic sunrise over Manhattan. Over this, we hear the calm, clinical voice of Dr. Hakeem. When discontinuing long-term use of <coughs> antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications, or in your case, a whimsical blend of both, patients may experience some or all of the following symptoms. We're in Penelope's apartment. She awakens, struggling to force her eyes open. Fatigue. She pulls herself out of bed to a standing position. Dizziness. She falls out of frame. <laughs> Her exterior street. She walks towards campus. A student passes, eating a bulging breakfast burrito. Nausea. The smell hits her square in the face, and she turns away green. At a slushy truck, Penelope is in line with a bunch of kids. Reaching the front, she points to a flavor and indicates big. Sure. 
sugar cravings. She's handed a large purple slushie in a plastic cup with a cartoon character on the side. She exits, slurping contentedly. My ugliness. In the therapist's office, in a flashback, Penelope asks... Wait, myoclinus, what's that? Sudden involuntary twitching of muscle or group of muscles. On the street, Penelope is walking along, slurping her slushy when her legs suddenly spasms, jerking her around. Passersby look on curiously as she struggles to maintain her balance. <clears throat> Anything else? Um, that's about it. Oh, and headaches. On this, the blast of a car horn cuts through Penelope's head like a knife. She flings her slushy at the car and quickly ducks around a corner. <laughs> We're exterior at the roof terrace of her apartment that evening. Penelope enters to find Ava lounging on a chaise. She's Penelope's age, lean and muscular, an exotic brutish beauty. Seeing her, Ava smiles, holds up a lit cigarette and a glass of Chardonnay, and intones in her loose Eastern European drawl. Care to join me? Oh, look, the dancer's dinner. Deal me in. <laughs> she tosses her bag and coat aside and moves to join Ava. On the roof terrace later, the sun goes down. The two of them are sprawled across adjacent chaises, smoking and sipping wine. No, no, let's do your day first. Not much to tell. My company hates me, and they should, because I'm a cunt. My knees are giving out, so I can't even do the moves I bash them for falling down on, and my lead dancer, Kimmy, has a serious attitude problem, which is my own fault for sleeping with her. <laughs> I've stopped taking antidepressants. She's just so fucking beautiful. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> Wait. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Are we happy about this? We're auditing the course. I kind of liked the pillhead you. You're not going to change personalities, are you? Don't stop being the callow girl I fell in love with. We weren't in love. I was on the rebound from Claude, and you were being your usual predatory self. I like guys. Oh, you keep right on thinking that. <laughs> so, your day. Ugh. Come on. I may have been inappropriate. Well, you're always inappropriate. Get a pill that cuts that, that, that cuts that out, and then we'll talk. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm feeling stuff. Everything's clearer, and I don't like it. Like on the way home, I passed that homeless kid, the one with the big headphones who panhandles in front of St. John's the Divine. I found myself thinking about his parents. Well, don't do that. Don't start caring about I people. don't want to. But it's as if I have this backlog of unfelt emotions, and they're going to come out whether I like it or not, even if they have nothing to do with... Well... Let me tell you what happened in my office hours. And we're in Penelope's office earlier that day. Ivy enters wearing a girl's pink crocheted stocking cap. Good morning. Penelope doesn't look up from the paper she's grading. Please do not say good morning to me. The morning has not occurred. Therefore, its goodness cannot yet be... What is that ludicrous headgear? Uh, my girlfriend and I had a fight, so I tried cutting my own hair. He pulls off the cap, revealing a ragged, uneven haircut. I like it. Hey, uh, I did some work on my story last night. He pulls a 500-page behemoth out of his backpack, then stacks another 500-page behemoth on top of it. <laughs> Penelope reacts. We go back to the roof terrace. So he insists on reading the thing to me. I mean, this is going to take months. And then suddenly... Utterly, without warning. Music sneaks in, something insistent and thrumming like I feel love. Penelope's office earlier that day, the music builds, washing out the sound of Ivy's voice as we push in on Penelope's face. 
I start to feel horny. <laughs> what? Seriously? Seriously. Sure enough, her face is flushed. Her breath is coming faster. Oblivious, Ivy continues to read. The story's about death. It's about muffins. God knows what it's about. <laughs> I'm not hearing any of it. All I want is a quick date with my shower head. The one that comes off the wall. In the office, Penelope fans herself, crosses and uncrosses her legs. Over this, we hear Ava laughing. On the roof terrace, Ava is helpless with laughter. Stop! <laughs> Stop that! It's horrifying! Uh, I think you have a little crush on I don't! It's chemicals! It has nothing to do with ivy. Asterisk. Go to the bottom of the page. Who is 22? I think you love him. What's his name again? Ivy. Because he's Augustus Walbridge IV. You know, Ivy. That I like. I do like his name. <laughs> 22, huh? Not on your life. So, what do your chemicals have planned for tomorrow? I'm dreading it, but I've got to see this through. See what I'm like without the... See what I'm... See what I'm like. It's been a while. I've kind of forgotten. This hangs in the air for a moment. Is it old 22? Drop it. <laughs> The coffee shop the next morning. It's another big sister breakfast. Penelope reads The Atlantic. Adoracion vigorously brushes her doll's hair. Penelope chuckles at something in the magazine. <laughs> yes, nice going, Atlantic schmuckos. <laughs> Someone didn't get the memo that post-structuralism died with Michael Foucault. <laughs> you don't understand what I just said, but at certain Soho dinner parties, that observation would have just killed <laughs> Suddenly, Adoracion looks up, stricken. Ah! What's wrong? Mira! She shows Penelope. Her doll's head has come off and is hanging by its hair from the little hairbrush. Well, that's just... Penelope abruptly bursts into tears. Adoracion gasps. No, this isn't about... I just... I just stopped... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Mm. Adoracion runs to Penelope and wraps her arms around her in a clumsy hug. I'm really... No se preocupe. Es... She wrinkles her nose for a moment, straining to remember the words, then... It's fun. <laughs> At the Big Sister Association later, Penelope drops Adoracion off. So then you're keeping her. <laughs> For now. But I have 30 days, right? <laughs> she gives Adoracion a little wave and exits. We're exterior of the street, continuous. Penelope crosses the street, heading back toward campus. Suddenly, in the middle of the crosswalk, she freezes. A flash of inspiration. She walks slowly toward the curb, turning this new notion over in her mind. Is it? Could it be? She breaks into a wild run. Later at her apartment, she bursts in, rips open her laptop, and begins typing furiously. It's later, the sun's gone down, and Penelope is still typing away, now in near darkness, her face lit only by the glow of the laptop. She reaches over, flips on the desk lamp, and continues typing. Later, she takes a slug of coffee and keeps going, smiling at something she's just written. Still later, the desk is empty. We hear an off-screen flush. Then Penelope returns from the bathroom with the laptop and resumes typing. Still later, now it's dawn. She's making the final push for the finish. She types the last few words with a flourish, saves, then slumps back in her chair, spent. She sips her coffee for a beat, savoring the moment. Then she picks up the phone and dials. We go to Claude's hotel room at the same time. The phone rings. Claude stirs, then answers groggily. Hello? Hi. Penelope's in the middle of lighting a cigarette. It's me. Um, good morning. 
please do not say good morning. <laughs> Never mind. Look, I want you to schedule a reading. This gets Claude's attention. He sits up. Really? I think I've got something. You? Yeah. The first chapter. You sound good. I feel good. <laughs> well, all right. Let me make some calls. This is very, very propitious. Are you Sorry. saying propitious? Because <laughs> I think you are. I've practiced, practiced all morning. Well, all right. Let me make some calls. This is very, very propitious. <laughs> what? I remember teaching you that word. Uh, she realized she didn't teach him it very well. Hey, Claude. Yeah. Best wishes on that new baby. Thanks. Right back at you. He hangs up. Penelope sits, smoking her cigarette, kind of amazed. We go to the college auditorium at night. The reading is packed with people. Penelope Cloud's first new fiction in 19 years is quite the literary event. Kendall's there, as are Ivy, Georgia, and Penelope's other students. Dr. Hakim is in the back, trying to be inconspicuous. Claude is near the front. Ava enters and sits next to him. Good evening, Claude. Eva. You find me threatening, do you not? <laughs> nope. Just ashamed you've slept with more women than me. She pats his knee. Penelope enters and steps up to the podium. The crowd quiets. Hello. It's been a while. There's appreciative laughter from the audience. So, this is from my new book. I hope you like it. She pulls out a large, impressive-looking manuscript and sets it before her on the podium. As she opens it, we see that it's a ream of blank paper with her 22 typed pages stuffed into the middle. <laughs> Penelope takes a deep breath and starts to read. Women reserve a special corner of their hearts for sins they never committed. And we dissolve to later. Penelope turns the last page. For it is only rarely that one can see in a little boy the promise, the promise of a man who can almost always see in a little girl, the threat of a woman. She closes the manuscript to riotous applause. Thank you. As the ovation goes on, Penelope beams, basking in the approbation, as happy as we've ever seen her. Material the lobby later, a wine and cheese reception, Penelope is thronged by well-wishers. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, you were very kind. Claude comes up to her <laughs> and takes her aside. Penelope, a moment? Oh, I hate that. A moment? That's even worse than good morning. What does it mean? May I borrow one of your moments? A moment! That's like Donald Trump speak. <laughs> You're happy, aren't you? I'm over the goddamn moon. <laughs> Me too. You know, I was this close to having to edit another thing about Jesus and his kids and the big cover-up, but now... <laughs> you've done it, Penn. Claude gives her a hug and moves off. A beat later, a pink-faced, corduroy-jacketed man in his mid-thirties pushes his way through the crowd and gazes at Penelope, starry-eyed. Hello, Penelope. <laughs> Well, hello, Dr. Birkin. <laughs> uh, that, that was really beautiful tonight. Yes, and it's all possible because I stopped taking the drugs you so enthusiastically thrust upon me. I, I know, I know I made mistakes. Uh, perhaps I was so eager to spend time with you that I inadvertently created a narcotic dependency. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, every great love story starts rockily. We don't have a love story. I, well, I want us to have one. Uh, while you were my patient, it, it would have been improper. But now... It's just repulsive. <laughs> Forget it, Dennis. One night with you. That, that's all I ask. Hmm. Not even for practice. <laughs> she moves away right into the path of Ivy. Hi. Uh, I wanted to thank you. Well, I'm pleased to have the chance to share my talent with the world. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, what, what you read tonight, um, you used some of my stuff. Uh, like a lot of my stuff. All of my uh, stuff. <laughs> what? Uh, what you just read, that was, uh, that was pretty much my story. I... That's impossible. Uh, I noticed you were taking a lot of pills. Uh, maybe you forgot you read it. He takes out his manuscript. Here, let me show you my... Uh, uh, would you put that away? Are you insane? There is no way that I... But then she hesitates. We flash back to her office. The horny scene. Only this time we're on Ivy as he reads from his giant manuscript. He barely notices Penelope across from him in her inexplicable state of arousal. And although we can sometimes see in a little boy the promise of a man, we can always see in a little girl the threat of a woman. Uh, <laughs> nice, or I, I feel it could be phrased better. Or we go back to the present. Penelope realizes the truth of what she's done. Oh, my God. Panic, she pulls Ivy into an adjoining stairwell. In the stairwell, Penelope paces, frantic, horrified, terrified. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I don't, I don't know who I'm talking to. I'm agnostic. Oh, I don't... But even so... Hey. Oh, my God. Hey, hey. <laughs> it's, it's okay. So, so, so you didn't write it. Self-expression's overrated. I mean, don't we have better things to do to express than, you know, ourself? <laughs> Okay, what do you want from me? Nothing. Don't play around. You could wreck me. Why would I do that? Because you can. A lot of people like tearing people down. I should know. I'm one of them. <laughs> now, what do you want? I really, I really don't want anything. Then, why would you tell me this? I'm, I don't know, honored? Uh, you liked my writing enough to steal from it? coming from you, someone of your stature. That's like the ultimate compliment. So, as I said at the outset, uh, thank you. Penelope looks at him for a long beat, her emotions a whirl. Then she grabs his face and kisses him passionately. <laughs> Ivy's eyes go wide. Then he goes with it. She pulls away, breathless. Hey, fun! <laughs> I'm sorry, that was... I don't know why I did that. You see, I recently discontinued the use of my antidepressants. She grabs him and kisses him again. This time even more desperately. Then she staggers back. Jesus Christ! On this, the door to the lobby opens. It's Georgia. Penelope steps away from Ivy, fixing her hair, trying to play it cool. Hello, Georgia. Oh, hi, guest lecturer Cloud. Tonight was really great. What a neat story. It's all changing. None of that's in the book. Uh, I'll be right out, babe. Georgia goes. <laughs> Ivy sheepishly turns to Penelope. That's my, uh, that's my girlfriend. Sure. I should... Uh, <laughs> he exits, leaving Penelope at a loss in the stairwell. 
Word here at a coffee shop the next morning. Now Penelope is the one who's silent as Adoracion jabbers on and on in Spanish. As she talks, she carefully brushes the hair on the disembodied doll head. The headless body sits on the table. Y le dije a mi mamá que me reparara la muñeca, pero me dijo que no podía. Y luego le dije a mi papá si podíamos comprar otra muñeca. Y me dijo que no tenemos dinero para otra muñeca. Penelope picks up the doll body, knocking on the table to get Adoracion's attention, and indicates the head, give it to me. Adoracion hands it over. Penelope struggles for a moment, then manages to snap the head back on. As Penelope hands back the restored doll, Adoracion gazes at it reverently as if Penelope's performed a miracle. Gracias! De nada. Adoracion's smile is so warm and genuine that Penelope can't help but smile back. Interior classroom later. Penelope is organizing her papers. Students are filtering in. Ivy enters with Georgia, who moves to her seat. Ivy hangs back for a moment, hovering near Penelope. Hello. <laughs> Hello. He looks at her, a question in his eyes. Her eyes answer by telling him to move along. <laughs> yeah, okay, great. <laughs> he goes to his seat. The students settle in as Penelope moves to the front of the room. She stands there for a moment, gazing out at their youthful, expectant faces. And she takes a deep breath and utters a phrase she hasn't spoken in years. Good morning. <laughs> and we fade out, end of show. What do you look for in a book? Literally, if on the back it said, like, this book made me shit my pants, I'd be like, that's, I'm buying this book. Yeah. Like, like, I think the problem with blurbs a lot of times. I like that we both want to crap ourselves <laughs> over books. What's the best way to e-read in the tub? Listen to that noise. I'm reviewing a plastic bag today. <laughs> How do you find a good book? This is the most fucked up weird shit you've ever oh, yeah, read. Am, You're like into it. I'm like, hand it take, over. Take my money. <laughs> I'm Bria Grant. And I'm Mallory O'Mara. We're reading glasses and we solve all your bookish problems every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Here I am with Jeff Greenstein. Jeff, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, let me start this, which I often do by uh, telling you my favorite joke. Oh, um, great. And it was, pretty, it was a pretty easy choice. It's when Dr. Hakeem says, uh, well, at least you're writing again. Oh. She ca- catches you know, <laughs> you know, with the prescription pad, well, at least you're writing again. And it's just so in the pocket that joke is so perfectly set up by everything that comes before and do you remember you remember writing that line i remember writing that line in the moment it was not in the outline i actually was writing that scene i had just written that long scene where he kind of attempts to therapize her and she is resistant and then ultimately seems to have given her heart to the process of healing and therapy and so forth she's stolen his prescription pad and then i came up with this bit in the moment where she's in the elevator on the way down and she starts <laughs> merrily writing prescriptions that just seemed really funny to me and then i figured well how am i going to get how am i going to get out of this and the door opens and it just came to me like at least yeah, you're writing again. It, it's just, it's the Yeah, it is joke. perfect. It got a nice laugh at yeah. the read, which yeah. made me happy because it's an act break. Yes. It's, yeah, so. It's yeah. just so on story and the character. It's just a great line. So. Thank you. Um, so realizing that uh, we somewhat bent the rules yes. of Dead Pilot Society, which is, uh, as we have say, scripts that were sold to networks but never shot. This one kind of has an asterisk. Yes. There's a real long. Uh, <laughs> history to this to this show so why don't we let, let's let's take it back to the year the year was uh let's see 2006 2006 okay yes. uh when you first sold this to cbs you, it was a, a pitch or a it was an accident 
It was actually about maybe 200 yards from where we're sitting. Okay, we're at the farmer's market. Yeah, we're at, at the, the farmer's so market. Tele- and television city. Yeah, I, um, I, had, I was on Desperate Housewives at the time. It was either my second or third year on the show. And I had an overall deal with ABC Studios. And I believe I had set up like some, I had pity, of course, ABC had a first look at everything I did. So I had set up something at ABC. I don't remember what it was. But I think I had a half hour at ABC. Well, I actually do know what it was. It was a single camera half hour that I had set up at ABC. And that was going to be my piece of development for the year. But I knew the CBS executives, Julie Pernworth and Wendy Trilling, really well. And they wanted to, like, take me out to lunch just to see, like, pick my brain, see if I had anything I wanted to do. That morning, I had been on the exercise bike and I was reading this literary magazine called The Believer that I subscribed to. And there was an obituary for Susan Sontag. I didn't know that much about Susan Sontag, but there was a photograph of her accompanying the article. It's this beautiful picture, and she's lying on her back in a sweater, and she just looks so beautiful. And I thought, I want to write a show about a female intellectual superstar. And the entire show jumped into my head at the same time, like the whole show. That never happens. Every element, like the little sister, the, you know, affair with the students, stealing his writing, you know, Sontag had like a plagiarism thing that happened to her at one point in her career. So I was sort of taking some pages from the Sontag playbook, but this started kind of crystallizing in my mind the morning of that lunch. So the CBS execs took me to lunch at a fish place on Beverly, right around the corner from here. And they said, what are you working on? And I said, well, you know, I'm full-time on Desperate Housewives and I'm, uh, I'm writing a pilot for ABC, but I had an idea this morning for a thing and I don't even know what it is. And they said, well, what is it? I said, well, I said, it's about a female intellectual superstar. It's about a 42-year-old woman at a crossroads in her life. I said, I don't know much about it, except that I know it's going to be smart like Frasier, but noisy like Murphy Brown. And they went, oh, that sounds really interesting. I'm in the car on the way home from the lunch, and my agent at the time, Bob Broder, calls me and says, they bought it. (laughs) And I said, I said, um... Uh, there is no it at this point. It's like a, just a beginning of a germ of a thing. And he said, well, whatever they said to you, whatever you said to them, they're very excited about it. And they want to hear like the pitch. And so I went off and I wrote up notes on that thing that had come to me on the was bike. There, that was, there, was there a feeling of panic or was there a feeling of just excitement? Was it was part exciting. Of just like, oh, I mean, no. it was exciting because it was a just the show. I mean, well, people who are listening to this interview yes, have just heard it. They'll just heard so it. So yes. it was very different. It's very different. It doesn't set up like any other sort of half hour comedy. It's not like a you know, guy who moves back in with his parents or a girl who crash lands in her hometown after, you know, it was very unorthodox. And it was, so it was exciting to me when I thought about writing this character. That was the thing that drove it all was writing a character like Penelope that talks the way she does, who has a love of language, who's damaged the way she is. I got very excited about, like, putting the pieces together for this pitch. And it was I don't know how else to say this. This was the easiest and most frictionless and most like like exciting development process I've ever been through. Hmm. It was like butter. Like I wrote up the pitch, which was almost an outline. And I went in and I talked through it. It was CBS. They had very inconsequential notes. They sent me right off to draft. I wrote the draft in nine days, like in a fever dream. Like I've never had the experience of uh like not wanting to stop writing for fear that the character will stop talking to me you know uh the the metaphor that always occurs to me is you know when i when i was a kid i had a shortwave radio and like you would tune the knob very gently back and forth trying to like bring in a station from like 
the Czech Republic or something. And if you got the station loud and clear, like you didn't want to move, like for fear that you lose the station, like it would drift off or a cloud would come across and you would all of a sudden not be able to hear it. Penelope talking to me was like that. I felt like I had tuned into some radio station and I didn't want to stop working for fear that she would stop talking. Hmm. I mean, and that really is when you know how a character talks yeah what they sound like that's the key thing oh you know all these other elements that people want you to have are not quite as important as just knowing like okay i know how i know how he or she sounds and i can just start writing and and listening to them talk and you're almost just transcribing yeah and it was like that and and you know i talk i have talked a lot in podcasts including some of ben blacker's podcasts about how i just hate writing i find it excruciating and i always feel that writing process is like trying to tear something out of myself this was not like that this was this was like very very exciting i don't write with actors in mind and so this was just you know as you were saying i got a voice in my head for every one of the characters but penelope you know there's that opening monologue that starts the show where she just is talking to her little sister and won't stop there was a version of that monologue in one of the early drafts that was like four pages long <laughs> where she started talking about Carol King at one point and why Carol Klein was better than Carol King and so she just like went like once she started talking she wouldn't stop hmm. so you wrote that draft and they said okay we're shooting it was pretty much like they had a couple of notes like shorten that monologue mm-hmm. um, but there were no structural changes it was just from from rough from writer's draft to first draft was Again, like butter. It was like just tightening and just punching a couple of jokes. You know, one thing they said to me that was interesting, um, they said, this wasn't really a note so much as just a reminder. They said to me after that first draft, they said, the little sister is really important. Um, They said, like, those scenes are really important. To show the humanity. Yeah, and they were right. Like, it's the only selfless thing that she does in her life. And it's the only evidence that she has a humanity. You know, I used to think of Penelope as, like, like, it's almost like her head was like this balloon floating above her body. Like, she's so up in her head and disconnected from, you know, from her sexuality, disconnected from her, you know, her earthiness that is the one part that shows us that she's yearning to become a whole person that there's like right. part of her that has this weird mothering instinct and you yearn she fights for half yeah. the script you know, yeah two-thirds yeah it keeps trying to return the kid yeah you know like why I'm, I, there was one point where they said to me um do you think we need to explain why she's doing that why she has a little sister and i had some reference in the early draft that like it was um you know, it was research for a novel that went horribly awry. Um, but I ended up cutting it. I just like, let's just let it speak for itself. Like, it just shows us that she has this yearning, you know, like a little sprig poking up through the pavement, you know? Yeah, I um, think it was, I think that's smart. Because I, I, you know, having read it many times and, and, and heard it read, like, I never asked the question, why would she be doing yeah. this? Because um, it is weird. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess in my mind, it's just like she wants to be the kind of person who would do this. That's great, too. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> she liked to think of herself as someone who does good works. Right. That's also great. Right. But um, it also, of course, you know, it gave me this wonderful gift that I was able to get out all the exposition uh, and, sure. a, and a ton of character without ever having to do one of those 
terrible expositional scenes. Right. You know, she says everything we need to know about her in a page and a half, and then we're off and running. Yeah. And you have a fun reveal of who she's yeah. talking to, and it's not the mirror. So yeah. It's like, yeah. That's so. right. It's not a mirror. I hate VO. I've never used yeah. VO yeah, in a I'm pilot. I'm there. I'm just allergic to it. You know, I just think it is such a crutch for writers, and this gave me a way to use VO without being <laughs> VO. Right. Um, so, so that CBS one, um, you did shoot a pilot. Yes. And well, what? Yeah. Well, what happened was so. As I said, the development process was quite frictionless, and it became kind of a hot script that year. Like CBS, um, once they announced that they were picking it up to pilot, there was a lot of interest from a lot of actresses in this part. And what I sort of belatedly realized is that if you write a female character who is not defined by her desire for a boy or a baby. Um, actresses will line up around the block to play that part. Um, she's nobody's wife or mother or girlfriend. You know, she is a woman who is mature and who is seeking sort of wholeness and professional and personal fulfillment. And that kind of journey was really exciting to a lot of actors. So yeah, it became a script that a lot of name actresses wanted to do. Um, and then uh, when Marissa Tomei wanted to do it, um, every other uh, contender fell away because that was that was something that CBS was just super duper excited Did about. Did they have a deal with Marissa Tomei? At the no, point? no, they didn't. No, they had been courting her for a very long time. Right. Uh, every network had been courting her for a very long time. I mean, she was just in uh, All in the Family. She's a brilliant comedic actress, and I was I was very gratified to see that like her turn as Edith in All in the Family just reminded people this is a really really funny theater actress. Yeah. And uh, so once Marissa said she wanted to do it then it became that and but unfortunately it didn't quite work as a pilot and you know marissa was lovely and it was a very very um it was a tough week because i saw an actor who was struggling to sort of find herself inside the character and so the pod didn't come out right it just did not was come it out jimmy right. who directed the pod? yeah jimmy directed jimmy it Burrows. it was a really good cast jimmy directed um, Kristen Mar Ritter. Kristen Ritter played Georgia. Nick D'Augusto, who's gone on to great things as well. He played Ivy. Um, Cynthia Watros, who's wonderful from Lost. She's terrific. She played Eva. Um, Felicia Day had a small part in it as Kendall okay. and reprised Please. that part for the reading. Um, it was just, it was a great group of people. Um, as I said, we started with a script that everyone was really enthusiastic about, but it just did not gel. It just... For whatever reason, you know, it just sometimes just a meeting of actor and role is not right. And it just didn't work out. And did you know that kind of from the table read when I did, the chemistry I mean, just wasn't there? It just, you know, and I felt Marissa struggling, you know, and I remember I called CBS and I said, I said, I think we might want to step away from this process and maybe like roll this to midseason and do it with a different actor. And they got. You know, understandably, they were kind of unhappy with me for saying that. Their attitude was like, oh, you're saying the Academy Award winner can't do your words? <laughs> right. um, and I was like, no, it's not that. It's like she doesn't seem to feel good about what she's doing in this character. And I, why make her struggle? Like, why, you know, try and force a square peg and stuff? But they, again, it was, this was became the Marissa Tomei show. Right. And there was a point where... 
um, after a particularly bad network run through in front of the audience, they really wanted me to throw everything overboard and write basically a whole new pilot for her. They didn't want her to be as intellectual. They did not want her to have had sexual liaisons with women. They did not want, you know, the only thing they wanted to keep was the little sister. They even said to me, cut good morning. Hmm. Which, as you know, yeah. <laughs> that is the, the centerpiece. It's the structure. It's, yeah. It shows her journey from point A yeah. to point B in the pilot. Yeah, but this happens sometimes. I mean, yeah. again, you, you, you've had a lot of unshot pilots, so maybe, maybe writers haven't mm-hmm. talked about this. But there is a process that happens in the course of a pilot, which is tailoring, tailoring your material to the actors you've cast. This was not working. Yeah. It was just a suit that did not fit And her. it's also the, the trick when an actor like Marissa Tomei, is obviously offer only. So you don't get to hear them read the stuff before you cast them. Yeah. You just, you know, you have a body of work you can look at, but you haven't heard them read the this part. And that's always yeah. so crucial because someone could be great, but when you haven't heard them read the yeah. character, it may not work. You know, it, it sounds like if she had auditioned, you would have discovered this at that. Yeah, you would phase. have gone. Yeah, that's that. This doesn't sound no, right. You're you great. Know? You're obviously a great actor. And I want to. I can't stress this enough. I love Marissa. She could not have been more kind or warm or thoughtful. I mean, I still exchange birthday emails with her every year. Like she was great, but it was just you know not every actor is right for every single part. And um, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of examples in the canon of just actors where you go, what? Yeah. And this just didn't work. And unfortunately, CBS's priority was getting Marissa Tomei on the air in a half hour. Um, and that eclipsed their desire to make anything that resembled the thing that got us all excited mm-hmm. at that lunch on Beverly Boulevard three months prior. So it ended up being, you know, a process that satisfied nobody. Um, and the half hour that we shot wasn't a particularly good representation of the script that I had written, nor was it a particularly good representation of Marissa Tomei's talent. And I forget, did she did she end up doing a, another show? She has them? never done another. She never did. She yeah. gets offered everything. Yeah. I get a lot of calls about her. People saying, yeah. like, what was she like to work with? And my answer is always, she's amazing. Yeah. She's amazing. I like, remember it, that everyone was looking at me, and I think, you know, Ted and I met with her around that time, like for something. It was just like that was the that was the big great. prize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's the big prize. And yeah. I, I was again, after all in the family, I was really excited to see like her talking about how much she'd love to do a half hour before a live audience. I think she'd be amazing. Whoever gets her is lucky. Yeah. She's incredible. Um, so okay. So this so now it's it's dead. You've got the script that yes. everyone had loved. You've yes. got it, it's dead. And now where does Amazon enter this picture? Well, here's what happened. So during my time on Will and Grace, I had become friendly with a guy named John Plowman, who at the time was head of BBC comedy. Um, He was the executive who was responsible for the original The Office, for Absolutely Fabulous, Little Britain, The Thick of It, basically every great British comedy of the last 25 years, this man executive produced. Non-writing executive producer, but a genius at helping writers realize, you know, uh, a particular vision. Okay, he talent scouted Ricky Gervais. He, you know, he talent scouted Armando Iannucci. Like these, this is a guy who's amazing. He, I had met him as he was part of a visiting delegation of European producers who visited during the production of a Will and Grace episode, and he and I just hit it off. And so he happened to be in town for the pilot week of Penelope Cloud, and I invited him to be part of my punch-up room. 
And, you know, this is something you may have talked about on this podcast. When you get a pilot picked up, you call some of your smart writer friends and you ask them to be a room so that you can fix jokes and so forth. So he was around for that whole week. Even though he wasn't a writer, I thought it'd be fun to have him in the room. And he did pitch a joke. He pitched the joke that Claude has about I was this close to having to do another book about Jesus and his kids and the big cover up. Uh, That was John's joke, which I love. So anyway, at the end, so he was with me the whole process and he got to see as this script, which he thought was really great at the outset, got turned into something, a pilot that was not so great. He actually wrote about this in his new memoir, which is called How to Produce Comedy Bronze. There's actually a little (laughs) there's actually a few pages about his observation of the Penelope Cloud process at the end of the process. Like after CBS passed on it, John took me aside and said, was that the show you set out Mm -hmm. to make? And I said, no, it was not the show. It was. And he said, I am not letting go of this. He said, I'm going to find a way to get this thing made. And so for the next several years, he endeavored to try to interest first the BBC, Sky TV, whatever, in this project. He talked to actresses he knew, Jennifer Saunders, Emma Thompson, Don French. Like, he just was constantly hustling this script. In late 2015, he called me and he said, look, Amazon has set up an office in the UK to do product that is going to be aimed at the British and Australian market. And there was an executive there that John met with who basically said to John, you are a god. Anything you want to do, we'll do it. And he said, I I want to do Penelope Cloud with Don French. And so they said, yes. So John called me. This was like November of 2015. And he said, Amazon UK wants to order six episodes, single camera, with you writing and directing all six of them. And I was like, Hell yeah. When do we start? And he said, well, the production date would be May 2016. Dawn has a window in her schedule. Um, You should probably like fly to the UK, meet with Dawn. We'll talk about it. And so we did. And I, you know, and Dawn was amazing. Dawn is, I don't know if a lot of American uh, listeners will know her, but she was a part of a partnership with Jennifer Saunders, French and Saunders and absolutely fabulous actually started as a sketch on the French and Saunders show. Dawn is, she was in Harry Potter. She's a wonderful, wonderful actress and just a great, great person. So she and I totally hit it off. So I started writing scripts. I started breaking the season and writing scripts um, because there was such a time crunch. I recruited a couple of friends of mine to help me break the season. And then uh, two of them helped me write some of those scripts. Um, Bob Cushell wrote episode three, a really great UK writer named Tom, Tom, Tom Bidwell, who created my Mad Fat Diary, amazing show. He wrote episode five. I wrote episodes two, four, and uh, let's see, two, four, and started episode six. Were you able to easily tune back in to the station? It's so great you asked me that question. I was terrified going into episode two about whether she would start talking to me again. And so I immersed myself in all the same media that I had immersed myself in the first time. I reread Susan Sontag, Dorothy Parker, um, Mary McCarthy. Um, Let's see. Trying to think of the the other like uh, pantheon of female intellectuals that I was. But anyway, but she came back. She came back. And so I wrote an episode two I was really happy with an episode four that to date is one of my favorite scripts I've ever done. So I was starting to put it together. So remember, my start date is April is um, my start date is I believe late May of 2016 in April. I get a call from the U.S. executives at Amazon saying, hey, listen, now I should also note that in those years when John was trying to get this thing set up somewhere, he and I approached the executives at Amazon US and they said, no, 
They were not interested. But once the UK booted up this production, the Amazon US executives got interested. And so they called and said, hey, listen, we hear you're doing Penelope Cloud with Don French. That sounds great. We'd love to air it in the US as well. And I was like, okay. Now I should mention, it's never about the money, but I was doing this for 40% of my quote. Right. Because I was just doing it for love, right? This yes, was like, I'm just doing it for love. And so I thought, all right, well, you know, if I had sold this to Amazon US, that might be a different story, but who cares? I just want to make the show. So, and you've got six episodes, you know, at this point, you've got all six, five and a half, five and a half, five and a half. And, 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 and sound stages are sound stages. Yeah. At this point, hired. starting to crew up, I had Alfred Molina interested in playing Claude would have been unbelievable. Right. And John Cryer was going to play uh, Dr. Birkin, you know, the, uh, yeah. you know, the disgraced ex-therapist. Um, I had Jen Houston, who was the casting director from Girls and Orange is New Black, set to cast the show in the U.S. I had a U.K. casting director as well. I had the DP from Sherlock. I had the production, the production designer from, uh, um, let's see, from Absolutely Fabulous. And I had booked sound stages in Cardiff and was location scouting in New York City. So I was like getting ready to go. And the U.S. executives call and say, hey, listen, um, tell us what you're up to. We love that script. You know, we'd love to air it in the U.S. And I was like, I have five and a half scripts. And they said, well, why don't you come in and let's just talk about how we're going to promote this thing. And I was like, OK. So I go in and I have a meeting with uh, the head of comedy at the time, Joe Lewis and his team. And I have obviously a lot to talk about. And I pitch them the season. And I say this and this and this and this. And one of the things that happened in series was I, I did not want to do a protracted will they or won't they between Penelope and Ivy. So I had a thing where they sleep together in episode two. And then episodes three through six were a lot about the fallout from that abortive relationship. Right. And other things we learn about Penelope as she attempts to we sort of unpack some of the events of the past, but also deal with in the present her attempts to kind of kickstart her to really write the novel. Right. Okay. So I pitched them the season, including like this cliffhanger that happens in the season finale. And they laugh and they cry. I mean, it goes over <laughs> really, really well. And uh, I'm very excited. And so they say, great. And they start talking about promotion and they start talking about the poster and it's all good. They call me and uh, they, uh, one of the um, uh, executives call me and say, hey, listen, can you send us the scripts? I'm like, sure. So I send them the scripts and I send them an outline for episode six, which I'm writing at the time. At this point, I am three weeks from the start of prep. They call and they say, hey, we have some thoughts. And I was like, OK, all right. Thoughts are fine. And I'm thinking my subtitle is, why do you have thoughts? Like I've been developing this with John Plowman, a pretty great producer, and the team in the UK. I don't know why the US executives have any thoughts, but I'm happy to hear them. And I go in and they say, they start with, what if she sleeps with Ivy in episode two? I mean, so sorry. They say, what if she sleeps with Ivy in the finale? And I said, she doesn't. She sleeps <laughs> with him in episode two. two. Yeah. And then all this other stuff happens that I've already written. And they said, well, you know, we have a storytelling style here at Amazon. At the time, they were high on Transparent right. and Mozart in the Jungle. And they said things on Amazon comedies tend to move really slowly. And I said, Transparent's not a comedy. And, and Mozart in the Jungle's not a Mozart comedy. Mozart in the Jungle's not a comedy. I said, this is a show about a woman off her meds. Things are going to happen fast. And this led to a series of conversations and arguments and escalating uh, 
entrenchment that I will skip. <laughs> um, but suffice it to say that the rhetoric got more and more heated. I got more and more upset because I was under a lot of pressure and I was ready to transition from the writing phase to the directing phase. And at a certain point, they sent me a 14 page single spaced memo outlining all the changes that were going to be required in the scripts before they would be prepared to start writing checks to all the people I had hired. Wow. And I said, I, and it ultimately, I don't, this is probably, there was a, there was a joke. (laughs) I, I, there was a joke in episode four, which I really, really liked. We met the character of Jill, Claude's crazy wife. Okay. And there was a joke that I had written that I really loved. Now, I will say to the listening audience, you don't have to love this joke. (laughs) Okay. But I really loved this joke. Um, we meet Jill at a dinner uh, that Penelope is hosting, and Jill is really quite horrible and abrasive. <laughs> and and um, and well, she, Mary, in the in the pilot, there's just those couple minutes. Yes. She sends says your disease is yeah your disease is alive inside, inside me. Yes. And the weird emojis, emojis of baby being shat upon. Yeah, Jill is a little crazy and a little erratic. We meet Jill, who is crazy and erratic, and. Um, her second line, her first line is she says said something and Claude says something a little controlling back to her. And Jill says, don't talk to me like that. You're not my dad. My dad's dead. And thank Christ, because my stepdad was a much better lay. Now, I love that line. <laughs> I really okay. love that line. That is a very dangerous, sure. transgressive, yes. provocative line that I happen to love. You do not have to love that line, but I did. Amazon told me to cut it. Now, now this is coming at the end of already a com- lot. Of yes. Coming at the end of a litany of changes, big and small, that they were insisting upon. Otherwise, like I said, they wouldn't write the checks. And I hit that point and I thought, I don't want to do this. I just don't want to do this anymore. Like, if this is what it's like in the pre-production phase, I can only imagine... First of all, I don't have time. And you're also... You're making the trade-off, which is you're taking 40% of your quote because you are figuring, this is the new streaming world. This is not network TV where I have to, you know, where they pay me more, but I have to take a million notes and I have to deal with standards and practices. So you've made that deal. And now you're finally like, not only am I getting paid much less, but I'm getting even more, more interference. interference. I mean, it sounds like way more interference than way CBS more. gave you. Yes, that's the irony. <laughs> that's the irony is that Amazon was more intrusive than CBS had been. And, you know, the money is inconsequential. I did this for love. I did it because it was a project that I was really passionate about. And the fun of it was going to be John Plowman, my friend and I going off and putting on a show. Right. And, and to make just six. Yeah, right just make it six. Yeah. And I just, my attitude was, well, twofold. First of all, I screwed this up once already back in 2006. I don't want to screw it up again. I don't want to make a mistake again. So I was probably gripping the wheel a little more tightly than I would have ordinarily. Well, you're 10 years into working on this project. Yeah, 10 years in. And then second, my attitude was like, guys, just don't air it. Don't air it. It was never aimed for the U.S. market anyway. Why are you guys, why do you even care? But of course, it was a turf war. You know, and they were feeling high on their own supply because Transparent had just won a Golden Globe. And and rightly so. Transparent's great. Transparent's a great show. All right. So they were right to feel kind of high on themselves, but they thought they had somehow like cracked the code. Right. And I'm and I'm guessing I, I haven't talked to Jill Soloway about it, but I'm guessing 
that Transparent wasn't successful and great because of their 14-page notes no. memos that no. they gave her. No, it was not. No, they it let, probably was great because they let her do whatever they let her they do. Wanted. Yes, that, or, you know, it's, and, you know, this is something those of us who have been through development know all too well. It's the meet the new boss, same as the old boss scenario, where the scrappy pirate radio style, you know, uh, you know, the way AMC was at the start, like they just came out of the box with three great hits. And you like, hear Genji talk about the beginning of Orange is the New Black. Yeah, exactly. She was able to say them. No, we don't. No, you don't give notes. Like that's not how yeah, it works. Like, yeah, and it's like so. All of a sudden, Amazon had gone from being, you know, uh, pirate to joining the Navy, you know? And so it was just, it was, I just didn't, I was, I, I gotta be honest, I wasn't very nice about it. I was kind of rude. Cause I felt bad, you know? And look, not that they had to care about this, but um, um, my father got very ill in the course of this process. And in March of that year, you know, two months before the start of production, he took a turn for the worse. And so I was juggling an ailing father in Atlanta at the same time as I was gearing up for a shoot Producing. in Cardiff. Yeah. And I was very scared that if things got worse, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna step away from the show You know, for a family obligation? So I was feeling kind of like a bit torn up and just to throw this all, you know, <laughs> and my son was getting ready to leave for college that fall and so you know final summer at home with the kid um, my marriage was under strain there were just a lot of things and you know uh there were a lot of things that were kind of eating at me and so i was not my best self so i would say i was probably um more intransigent than i might have been mm. but as i said Giving fourteen page a fourteen page notes memo three weeks before the start yeah, of production and, and being that adamant about notes you know yeah. you know there's usually uh, a sort of understanding of like we're going to offer thoughts you, you know there, there's there's not really i don't know i mean so often that like you must you must do these these are mandatory notes you run into it sometimes yeah um but this was you must or there is no shop yeah like it was pretty much like shotgun to the head you mm. know and so it was a heartbreaker because I was there on the precipice of making something that I thought was going to be pretty extraordinary mm -hmm. with people that I loved, you know, and that auteur thing we all dream of as writers <laughs> right. where it's like, oh, yeah, all. I get to direct them all. And like it was just going to be uh, it was as close to the dream as I had gotten in yeah. development and it was ripped away. And of course, the coda on all this is that all the executives who screwed with me got fired for being serial sexual harassers a few months later. And so there, that was cold comfort indeed, but it did mean that like, and also by the way, I'd blown six months. Right. You know, of like, I'd spent a lot of time and passed on a lot of jobs um, to, you know, shove them all aside for Penelope Cloud. So it was a heartbreaker. Yeah. So that qualifies for dead pilots. That is, that, I was gonna say, that's <laughs> what made it. That's what made it eligible with an asterisk. Yeah, with an asterisk. Uh, and you did, it was a, you know, we'll say it's a somewhat changed script from the one you shot for CBS. Slightly. You don't have to say how many lines changed. Well, lines changed. Lines changed. I mean, the original <laughs> so script, script. Okay, the, the Marissa script was about an expatriate New Yorker in Berkeley, California. Um, the script that we read the other day was actually about an expatriate Brit in New York City. And right. there, were, there were other things that changed as well that were designed to set up the subsequent five episodes a little better. Like, I mean, uh, Dr. Birkin, we never met him in the pilot of the Marissa episode. So okay. that was designed to set up a relationship that was actually gonna take hold later in the series. So it was not, I mean, I, 
I joked and said it was five lines different, but it, there were there were aspects of it that have been recalibrated. So that Dr. Birkin character became more significant in the yeah because I was I remember when you were like, hey, I asked John Cryer and he's going to play this part. I'm like, this he only has this, four lines. He has four lines. Like, yeah. well, how is John? But I had um, sold John on doing the Don French edition because I said it's going to start small. It's going to be like a running gag, like he's kind of stalking her. In every episode, like he was going to keep surfacing in every episode, and then he was going to be very important to the uh, the action of episode six the finale. Right. Well, he must have loved it. I mean, we yeah. ended up using him in bigger parts. He's than great. The other pilots, but he, you know, the fact that he was like, yeah, I mean, I'll come. Yeah. With these four lines. He's a huge fan of this project too. He and I were, you know, he and I became friends when we did uh, the show Partners together in 1995. Oh, right, right, right. And and then we did another show together, Getting Personal in 1998 and so he and I have just been really good friends for a long time so whenever I am writing something I'm always looking for is there a John thing in this so when I when we were doing the Don French edition I was like damn maybe I can get John to do he was still in two and a half men at the time but mm-hmm. I was like damn maybe I can get John to do like a little cameo that turns into a thing and he was only too amenable hmm. and there were you know there were a lot I mean, we, we were so lucky I mean I feel like Michaela Watkins just was so perfect. Amazing. Exactly the voice I had in my head when I wrote it. Yeah. Amazing. She was. They were. Listen, that whole cast was great. Um, Who was the kid from Catch 22? Daniel David. Oh, my God. God. (laughs) I love him. He was terrific as Ivy. That guy, Malcolm, was great as Claude. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. The kid who played Adoracion. She was great. (laughs) Yeah. It was it was a it was a really, really strong cast. It was thrilling. You know, obviously, I've had. What is it? We're going almost on 10 years with this script now, right? Something well, like that? I mean, oh, more than that like, shit. Than ten, I mean, 13 years. On, yeah. 13 years, that's right. Yeah. 13 years with this script, and I've never seen it come to life the way it did a few weeks ago right. at that reading. So it was exhilarating. No, it was fun to look over at, at, at you. You know, the space we, we use this time. Often we're in a theater, and I can't. You know, I'm up there reading stage directions, and I can't see the audience. So I can't see the writers reacting. Yeah. Here it was... It was more of like a conference room kind of situation. So I could see you, yeah, and I could see when things were scoring. And I do, and it was one of those things. It's, it's, you know, what we talked about with Marissa being kind of just not quite, you know, brilliant action, not quite right. This was a, when when Michaela started that first monologue. Even I, I didn't write this thing. You know, I just, you know, I was just like, oh my god, yeah, her, this is going to be great. Like, yeah, from, from the first few lines, yeah, you're like, no, she's. She is this. She's she's got this. This you know because she carries most of the show, and you don't know. We do these things as cold reads, so yeah. you don't know how it's going to go. It could have been the opposite. It could have started and be like, oh, that's just not quite right. But no, she no, she like, dialed no, in right away, yeah. and and it was just off to the races from the first page. The audience, you could tell, so I could see you like. Ah, this it is, was great. You know, and it is important to stress, I guess people know this, but like that was a cold read. Yeah. There was no direction. <laughs> no. no one was given any sort of direction for any of their parts. Those were actors going on their instincts based on the material. And boy, does she have instincts. I mean, just right in the pocket. It was ex- so exciting. <laughs> like when she hit that first joke, I assure you these are administered under a doctor's prescription and that got a laugh. I was like, oh, this is going to be really good. And then when she said, would you like some more vanilla milk? Right. Uh, it was like, oh, my God, this is going to be very fun. Yeah. And that's the fun thing. You know, I'm sure you've done enough of these that you've had both both feelings at a table. Yeah, read. sure. You know, it really is that first minute or so of a table read really just sets the tone for how, yeah. how it's going to go. And yeah. you have those where it's just kind of like, 
Oh shoot, we're not. I know you get that uneasy. You just oh, this is going to be rocky. Yeah, and if you're doing that for you know a real network one, you know like okay, at the end of the what I what I have to look forward to after this is people gathering in a room for an hour, then coming in and telling me telling you everything. Yeah. Oh, I should also say Andrew Wright, great with the stage direction. (laughs) That is an art. It really is keeping the flow. Keeping the flow is an art. As a director, you know, when I, I direct a lot of multi-camera half hours. And, and you read the stage directions. I read the stage directions. directions and keeping the flow of the piece and, and keeping the action alive while not detracting from what the actors are doing, there is a real art to it. So I was grateful well, to have you, you in that chair. I, I know how... I've I've been in the place where someone else is doing it. Yeah, it's like oh no, you're ruining it. Yeah, you're making this. You don't have to read that parenthetical. And you could have saved this joke that didn't that died by just picking up the cue quicker. So I'm just like okay, I do this. I do. I can kind of smooth those. Yeah, those points here. I mean, I really feel like it all. It was interesting to me that the only thing that didn't play I felt like and this is similar there's a Trump joke in there oh I know and it's just like I know and you learn it's impossible it's just like I you sort of I feel like you just reminded the audience of something they were just I know in a zone and they were like letting the outside world uh, yeah, but I listen. That was in the piece in 2015. I didn't know he was going to run for president. <laughs> oh, so it was. Oh it no, okay. No, he hadn't. When I when I locked up that draft, he hadn't done the golden escalator ride. Okay. Um. So I didn't know what was going to happen. Like uh, that would that joke absolutely would have changed because yeah, it did put people in. Like, oh shit! It, right. It, yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> such a lesson. It's just like doesn't matter how if it's a good. Joke, it's just like you, you almost can't do them. Like it's yeah. just like no, we don't want to be. No, we don't, <laughs> don't want to be in that place. But that is a particular i mean it's funny when i when i wrote the original draft i had donald trump speak in there back in 2006 because i couldn't think of anyone else who spoke in that really weird affected a moment you know that kind of weird way of talking to people that you really don't outside of like the apprentice yeah and it would have played so would have been fine in 2006 it's just you know whatever it's just like yeah kids have been watching friends now so i'm watching some of these episodes for the first time here and you know when they both run it monica and chandler go away to atlantic city and they both you know they uh, talk about running into donald trump and you have to say okay yeah there was a joke about tony blair too that didn't work in this yeah there's a joke where claude says you know you run away from london you're gonna miss stuff we got rid of blair too which would have been a pretty good joke back in 2015 that would have been a pretty good one Yeah. yeah But see, that's the other thing that's interesting is that I didn't, other than one word, I didn't alter anything from the anglicized script for the read. Like I had yeah, added some, still, the rhythm of an American intellectual is not that different from the rhythm of an English intellectual. Right. It's not that different from just yeah. a normal English person. No, there was only one one word that changed in her opening monologue when she's talking about um, how good it is that we don't know anything about Shakespeare. Yeah, right. She said, if we'd known, uh, you know, that uh, a bum foot kept him out of the army. Well, bum, of course, means ass in right. Britain. So I had to change it to a gammy foot. It's a, yeah, I saw that word, gammy. That's it. Not gammy. A gammy foot. Gammy right? foot, which basically means a bum, bum foot. foot. Yeah, but in British slang. Well, so it's the only thing I changed. That was the only thing you had to change. Only word I changed for the read. Um, so, so you have... So you've had this, you know, we, we don't have enough time to go through the whole career. Okay. Um, but going from, I guess, was Dream On the first 
Dream yeah. was the first show. So you first staff job. The yeah. first staff yeah. job. And that came about because you knew how, how did oh, you get no. that note? I got that because I mean at the time Jeff Strauss was my writing partner. Um, we had written freelance episodes of The Charmings, Mr. Belvedere, Charles in Charge. And then we wrote a spec Murphy Brown when Murphy Brown was a brand new show. And at the time, Marta, and Kauf- Marta Kaufman and David Crane were staffing the first season of Dream On, and they read that script. And also an unproduced, there was a great show called The Marshall Chronicles, which was on ABC. Richie Rosenstock created it and uh, later became a mentor to me. And Jeff and I wrote an episode of that show, and it was the show was canceled before that episode filmed. But it was a good script. So the Marshall Chronicles uh, uh, script and the Murphy Brown spec got us the meeting with Marta and David. So they read that Marshall Chronicles. Did they know the show? No. No. They just read an episode. They just read it. Yeah, it was a high school comedy. Okay. And they read those two scripts and they had us in for a meeting and they just, we made a love connection and we got hired as staff writers and ended up running the thing. We stayed on that show for five years. Okay. And then we followed them to Friends. So you had done, so five years of a single camera. Half hour for HBO, yeah. And then obviously. The year on Friends. And then during the year on Friends, Jeff and I wrote over Christmas break, we wrote the pilot Partners. They got picked up by Fox, and that was with John Cryer, Tate Donovan, and Maria Patillo, and Jimmy Burroughs directed that as well. That went for one season, um, and Jeff and I had a development deal and did a really not very good show called Getting Personal for the Fox Network, which ran a season and a half, and unfortunately ended our writing partnership. We're still friends. <laughs> um, but then I went from there to Will and & Grace and did started on Will & Grace. Jimmy recruited me for that show. I started on Will & Grace episode four and again, ended up running the thing with David and Max and stayed all the way through consulting on, I think it was episode, I mean, series seven. Hmm. Yeah, I stayed through season, season seven on Will & Grace, left right before the end of that. Did Mark Cherry recruited me for Desperate Housewives. That was my first time doing one hours. So I did season three, four, and five of Desperate Housewives. The Penelope Cloud script got Jason Kadem's attention, and he hired me for Parenthood based on that. So I left Desperate Housewives to do the first season of Parenthood, but then Mark Cherry wanted me back. And so he said, how can I make it creatively interesting for you to come back to Desperate Housewives? I said, I don't know. Let me direct a couple. So I went back to Housewives in season what did I just say? Three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, and directed a bunch of episodes. Those the, that was the first directing you had. Yeah, that was my first time directing. I did four episodes of Desperate Housewives, and all of a sudden I was a director. And so, since Desperate Housewives, other than than helping out on a mini room on an AMC show, I haven't been on staff. I've been directing multi camera half hours, Mom, The Odd Couple, Nine JKL, uh, Happy Together, and most recently The Neighborhood which I love. And uh, so directing those and then writing one hour dramas, the most recent of which is for AMC, which I'm waiting for the verdict on. So you started directing one hour drama, but it's all pretty much been four camera comedies. Yeah, Chuck Lorre gave me a break and let me direct one of the early episodes of Mom. And uh, they liked what I did, so they kept having me back. So I ended up doing, I think it was, 12 or 13 episodes of mom over the first two seasons which was just the best so great i mean tremendous writers but oh my god that cast yeah allison janney yeah, yeah. i directed her the year she won the emmy for the show <laughs> did i have anything to do with it uh, you be the judge um but is yeah it, what is it like being a writer coming in and directing you know this you, you get this script and you can't you 
I mean, do or maybe you can't. Well, you can't pitch jokes. Do you pitch jokes? Do you try and fix things when they're writing? Um, that Andrew, was, that's a great question. When I started directing, I used to wear a hat. I wore this Tilly hat that my uh, then wife had gotten for me because I was going to be shooting a lot outside. And she didn't want me to get a sunburned head. But the hat was good because it would remind me that on the set, I am a director, not a writer. And I am not, though I have to be attentive to things like story and character, I must respect the words. And so even through when I was directing uh, Mom, I would always have to remind myself by the pressure of the hat on my head, you are here as a director. But that said, Chuck liked that I was a writer. And he liked that sometimes I would come back to the room after a run through and say, hey, can we talk about the C scene? And I might even sit in the room with them and pitch jokes. And listen, when there's that scrum on the floor and there's eight writers in it, if you've got a great joke, yeah, fucking no, no chairs. Where yeah, it's you know, Burroughs would pitch jokes. You yeah. Know? So I thought I'm judicious about it. I I know what my job is on the floor. But every once in a while, you know, Jim Reynolds, who's the showrunner on the neighborhood, he'll pull me over and say, "Put on your writer hat for a minute." And so I'll pitch a joke occasionally, or if I think the story, you know, has a hiccup. Or, or an actress says to me, I, I don't know what I'm doing in this scene. I'll convey that using my writer head. You know, I feel like the decided advantage I have as someone who is entering the world of multi-camera directing, you know, after a 25-year career as a writer, is that 25-year career as a right. writer. You know, so I don't entirely take off the writer hat. But I have never had that feeling that you just described of like, oh, my God, if I could just get in and tear up that script. That's never happened. Because I work with... Ten, I've been lucky enough to work with really, really good writing staffs on good shows. Right. Yeah. It just, you know, the the, the Friends uh, ethos, maybe a little bit to a fault, I feel like, was always fix the writing. Like, yeah. That, that it, anything was wrong, there was just this instinct always, oh, it's probably the writing. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, sometimes, you know, obviously we'd give actors notes and you could fix yeah. things that way. But I feel like, you know, whether it's coming from, from David and Marta or whatever, it was always, oh, well, we'll well, we write it. Yeah, we'll write it. We'll Will and Grace it. was the same way. Will and yeah. Grace was more aggressively rewritten on the floor than any other show I've worked sure. on. Sure, I always hear those stories. Of yeah, people like I'm just going to save this for the floor because yeah, that's exactly. when things are actually going to get. Made yeah, and uh, and I do think that the best way. I mean, one of the things this I think that ethos was sort of inculcated by Burroughs because you know Burroughs would always. The metaphor I would always think of is it is like a suit. And so the script should be tailored as cleanly and tightly as possible to the actor and not vice versa. Don't expect the actor to bend to fill out holes in the suit. You know, so if something isn't working, you're be you can tell the actor once not as angry. OK, but if she does it again and it's still so coming across angry, think writing. about the words. Just right. think about the words. It's so much easier, you know. Um, there were so many times, you know, I mean, this, this is just stepping to the side for a minute, but, you know, Will and Grace had a lot of high profile guest stars, some of whom were actors and some of whom were Madonna. <laughs> um, and we found that in the case of Madonna, the stuff we pitched on the floor was the stuff she did the best because she would just, it would, she would just do it right. instinctually and it would come out of her mouth. She wasn't overthinking. Yeah, she wasn't overthinking it. So she would just do it and her natural charisma and her natural affect made it funny. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at that episode we did with her, most of that stuff are lines that she had heard about 45 seconds before. Hmm. So, yeah, it always uh, on the best shows, I think, you know, the writers know that the best way to influence the product is to rewrite. Right. And not direct. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I've worked with some directors who are also writers. Not not many. You know, you get a lot of former actors. You yeah. Know, yeah. Um, 
And Jimmy Burroughs is the one I can think of who would, you know, who, who would pitch jokes and you yeah. know, would get in that scrum and, and pitch. And most directors were just kind of go, I'll go. I'm going to fix the. Yeah. I'm going to adjust right. the cameras. I'm going to talk to the you, camera coordinator. Yeah. While you guys huddle up. But I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I feel lucky that I get to do both. I mean, you know, one of the things, as I said, that was so exciting about the uh, Amazon edition of Penelope mm-hmm. Cloud was getting those gears to mesh. You know, being able to really like I have I mean, I I, technically I wrote the Desperate Housewives episodes I directed, but those were gang written. Right. Um, I did direct an episode of a BBC comedy called Way to Go that my friend Bob Cushell created. I wrote and directed the finale. So and that was single camera half hour. So that was some of the feeling of like, oh, this is like the auteur thing. Right. You know, and if a line doesn't work, I can change it right now. Um, So that that's kind of in this phase of my career what I'm trying to make happen. I'm, you know, there's, I, you know, if this AMC thing goes, I would like to direct, if not the pilot, some episodes of that show because it would be fun and and creatively engaging to like try directing my own words. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe Penelope Cloud. Listen. Maybe this it gets you at a third third life. Well, you know, there was some excitement <laughs> after that read. Um, you know, the, the thing about you know, I often. Um, I often compare all of my um, unshot pilots to beautiful architectural designs for unbuilt buildings. (laughs) Um, You can appreciate them aesthetically on the paper, but what you really want to do is build a house. Um, The advantage of unbuilt buildings is you can always build them. So like if this did score really well at that reading, and so if it reignites interest in this thing, I'm always up for it because as I've found, I can still tune into that radio station if I have to. Yeah. So whoever's listening, that is <laughs> to make that happen. All right, Jeff, this was great. great thank to you. To you. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Okay. That's it for our show this month. This show is produced by myself and Ben Blacker and our associate producer, Noah Findling. Thanks to Enid and Dustin, everyone at the Writers Guild Foundation. Uh, did you like this? Uh, if you did, what about leaving us a review? It really does help other people find the podcast. Um, you should also subscribe to the podcast. Hey, we're on Stitcher now. Um, so that's something. Uh, we really don't want you to miss an episode. So subscribe while you're there. Just leave us that rating. Follow us on all the evil social media outlets. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Dead Pilot Society. you find out about our live shows I think January will be the next one. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening.